Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Trashy Divorces, everybody's favorite good podcast about bad relationships. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy, and we're going to continue The Scientist. This is part two of Carl Sagan's epically trashy journey through science and love. Thanks for joining us today for the continuation of Carl Sagan's marital misadventure. We left him with wife one, Lynn Margolis, done and dusted, and now he's on to wife number two. Getting there. Getting there. uh, I think we have to go, go, go. All right, Stacey, I think Lynn did well by choosing to exit out of that galaxy. Full agreement. Full agreement. So, yes, where we where we dropped Carl Sagan off, he had just divorced. Actually, his wife, Lynn, had just divorced him. He complained that this caused him to work fitfully on the Mariner 2 space probe, which went to Venus and was the first successful mission to another planet. Yeah, let's Hooray. inhabit lava. That sounds like a good idea. Sure. Carl Sagan continued working with the government on space projects, but after Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, he came to realize that under Lyndon Johnson, the American involvement in Vietnam was going from what he called a bloody impasse to a bloody nightmare. He would later recall, my realization of what a horror the American involvement in the Vietnam War was didn't really hit me until 64, 65, earlier than many, but later than it should have. During this time, he realized that he was part of the, quote, vast machine that made the war possible. He was an advisor to the military. He accepted military research dollars. He held security clearances, and he was engaged with the U.S. Intelligence Service. Yeah, you're pretty up in it, Carl. Pretty pretty up in it. So he became increasingly uneasy with all of this as Vietnam raged. In 1966, he could no longer reconcile all his ideals versus his work. And so he resigned from the U.S. Air Force Scientific Advisory Board saying, I just had had it up to here with the Vietnam War and the attitudes I encountered with general officers in the Pentagon appalled me. They tried to dissuade me saying I could recuse myself on issues connected with the Vietnam War and just worry about nuclear strategic issues and other things like that. But I was just too uncomfortable to do it. And again, a number of senior people who were really friendly to me in the scientific community told me that was really dumb and I shouldn't do it. The contacts were invaluable and all that, but I just couldn't bear it. Before that, I was happy to get some military support. I certainly was a consultant for many years to the Rand Corporation. That was military money supporting me. So he decided to no longer accept any military money for his research and he turned in his security clearance. Also in 1966, Carl co-authored an extremely popular book with Soviet astrophysicist Yosef Shklovsky, perhaps? Probably right. That's probably right. Called Intelligent Life in the Universe. The book was considered a triumph in popular science writing, and the idea of an American and Soviet working together was also quite novel at the time. Hopes for peace. 
height of the Cold War. Certainly. Through his war protests, he met a fellow protester and the woman who would become his second wife. Ah, of course. This was Linda Salzman. She was a student at Tufts University and an aspiring artist. Carl met her at a dinner party. They were very attracted to each other and they quickly began dating. She claims that for her, it was love at first sight. Carl was teaching at Harvard at the time, and since Linda was going to Tufts, they were just across town from each other there in Boston. Just a couple Bostonians in love. Carl's secretary, Valerie Sorensen, remembered, She was very nice, very innocent, I thought. She really wanted to get married. She was a Jewish girl, and she tried to explain to me how that was all the pressures on a Jewish girl to get married. In 1967, after teaching at Harvard for five years, this is such a strange thing. Harvard denied Carl tenure. Oh, this wow. This is a giant professional setback. There were a lot of factors leading to this. Some of it may have been professional jealousy with others, but he was kind of always in the papers commenting on everything. Well, maybe he's also an adult professor dating a student at Tufts. I actually don't think that was an issue in 1967. (laughs) So he had a lot of ambitions beyond being a professor and an academic researcher. And I think it ruffled some feathers with his colleagues. So yeah, Harvard denied Carl Sagan tenure. Wow. He uh, hopped off to Cornell University in 1968 and was made a full professor in 1971. He would stay there until his death. Meanwhile, he and Linda moved in together. Happy times. Eventually, she gave him an ultimatum. Marry me or else. She told him that he had until December 31st, 1967 to marry her or she was moving out and moving on. This worked, although they did not actually marry until April of 1968. But presumably, the engagement happened in her time frame. They married in Boston. She was 28 and he was 34. Oh, that's not too terrible. Not terrible. His friend, Carl's friend Lester Grinspoon, who served as best man, doubted that this marriage was going to work out. He felt that Carl and Linda were just too different, saying Carl had an enormous curiosity, a towering intellect, and linking those two things was his staggering imagination. And Linda just wasn't in the same ballpark. Nonetheless, he says that Linda was appealing and that she was sort of a weekend hippie. Oh, a weekend hippie. Weekend hippie and had a much more carefree approach to life that was really good for kind of mellowing Carl out a bit. Grinspoon also said there was, quote, a voluptuous quality to her. In fact, she was flirtatious, coquettish. Huh. Okay. Friends and colleagues noted that Linda made Carl more fun and more relaxed She also exposed him to non-academic people that he probably would not have encountered otherwise. Carl's friend, the author Isaac Asimov, attended their wedding. Asimov found Linda to be completely charming, describing her as, quote, an extraordinarily attractive young artist, rather shy and soft-spoken, and quite obviously deeply in love with Carl. I took to her at once. Oh, well, this sounds so promising. Mm -hmm. Isaac Asimov also met Carl's parents at the wedding. Oh. oh! He found Rachel to be, and I quote, vexing. Wow. I was about to say, you know, Rachel's got to have some things to say oh about this. Oh my God, yes. Rachel, I think rather pointedly, asked Isaac Asimov how his grandchildren were, just to point out that he was old. He was 48. He told her that he was not a grandfather. Rachel said, quote, 
There's nothing wrong with being a grandfather. He replied, undoubtedly. I just happen not to be one. She continued, Mr. Sagan and I have never been so happy as since we've had grandchildren. Oh my God, Rachel. Isaac Asimov responds, look, be delirious with happiness for all I care, but I am not a grandfather. Oh, Rachel, she just is like Mrs. Meany extraordinaire. She really, really is. In 1969, I think some of our listeners will really appreciate this, Carl Sagan penned an essay about the benefits of marijuana under the pseudonym of Mr. X. (laughs) Excellent. Wasn't that Ted Mosby's Mr. X DJ name? DJ name, Yeah. yeah. All right. So Sagan pins this essay under the pseudonym Mr. X, and it was not, his real identity was not revealed until 1999 when Kay Davidson's biography was published. Wow, like 30 years later. After his death, yeah. Huh. Apparently, he was only a casual user of marijuana, but he was a strong advocate for it. He wrote that smoking marijuana, quote, amplifies torpid sensibilities and produces what to me are even more interesting effects. Interesting. Mr. X. Mr. X. He explained that marijuana heightened his senses and experiences and that it actually helped him appreciate art, which was a subject that he had never really understood or enjoyed before. But the improved experiences extended to music, eating, and sex as well. He also thought it gave him greater insights and made him more in touch with himself and others. Well, the getting in touch with himself part sounds like it could be good. Oh, yeah. I I would agree with that, yes. He wrote, quote, when I'm high, I can penetrate into the past, recall childhood memories, friends, relatives, playthings, streets, smells, sounds, and tastes from a vanished era. I can reconstruct the actual occurrences in childhood events only half understood at the time. Many, but not all my cannabis trips have somewhere in them a symbolism significant to me, which I won't attempt to describe here, a kind of mandala embossed on the high. Free associating to this mandala, both visually and as plays on words, has produced a very rich array of insights. He concluded by explaining that marijuana was easy to use in moderation and should therefore be legal. The illegality of cannabis, he wrote, is outrageous, an impediment to full utilization of a drug which helps produce the serenity and insight, sensitivity, and fellowship so desperately needed in this increasingly mad and dangerous world. Wow, it's like he had some kind of insight. (laughs) Later, he was willing to openly advocate for marijuana usage when it came to helping cancer and AIDS patients needing palliative care. Excellent. Yeah, he said in an interview, is it rational to forbid patients who are dying from taking marijuana as a palliative to permit them to gain body weight and to get some food down? It seems madness to say, we're worried that you're going to become addicted to marijuana. There's no evidence, whatever, that it's an addictive drug. But even if it were, these people are dying. What are we saving them from? Marijuana really has been extraordinary for a number of ailments. Indeed, yeah. So this is a good spot to pause, take a little break, hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going we're gonna to walk through the 70s with Carl Sagan. And his weekend hippie wife. His weekend hippie Perfect. wife. A golden record. And falling in love with somebody else. Oh, oh no. no. See you on the flip. Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? 
all in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, take me to the 1970s. Load this space rocket up. Weekend hippie. In 1970, Linda gave birth to their son, Nick. Carl was teaching at Cornell by that time. The family lived up in Ithaca. Linda's more laid-back hippie influence continued. One of Carl's friends, an artist named John Lumberg, said that their home, quote, resonated with the vibes of the 60s. Nice. He continued, true, the odd humanities professor had embraced the counterculture, but it was very rare for an academic in the sciences to be comfortable inviting hippies to fix their vans in his garage, which is what one of them was doing when I arrived at Carl's home for the first time. (laughs) You gotta have a van. It was integral to the 60s experience, I believe. 100%. So the couple would fly to the Caribbean in the winters to enjoy snorkeling and scuba diving and... Carl once wrote that while scuba diving, quote, there was the sense of a third dimension. Although they were still having fun together during relaxing times, the couple also had plenty of arguments. They fought a great deal about Linda's desire to transcend housewifery. Housewifery? Anyway, she probably said housewifery. Unfortunately, Carl's thoughts about a woman's role in life were roughly that they should cook and clean for him so he could focus on more interesting pursuits Uh, And that had not changed since his time with his first wife. So he wants a trad wife. She does not want to be that. No, she's a weekend hippie. She's a countercultural girl. Tale as old as time. Yeah, this was one of the many contradictions of Carl Sagan. He was an outspoken advocate for women's rights and women's equality. But not in my house. Oh, yeah. Behaved like a complete (laughs) misogynist. And as so many had observed and commented on, they were very different people with temperaments that were not always compatible. Their son, Nick, would later say about the last years of their marriage, they were such opposite people in so many ways. He was the scientist, she was the artist. Their styles of arguing tell a lot about them. My mother was fire, explosive, passionate, a sort of hot-tempered arguer. My dad would be very logical and very much like ice. Oh, this is going to go great. Yeah. So he managed to repeat many of the same mistakes in his second marriage that he had (laughs) walloped through in his first. He didn't document those in any kind of thesis Uh, or provable theory. It did seem like he improved as a father Um, throughout his life. 
Nick would have a far better relationship with his dad than Dorian and Jeremy from the first marriage ever did. A week after Carl's death, Dorian Sagan wrote in an article, I loved him. I wanted to love him. I wanted him to love me. Aww. That's heartbreaking. Yeah. His son Jeremy has been a little vague about his feelings about his dad, but complained that a television biography of Carl Sagan was, quote, too positive. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he's been that vague, I guess. Um, He would go on to say he wasn't a perfect father, not by a long shot. I'm a determinist. His mother, Rachel, had a lot to do with it. I think she just drove him, did everything for him, wiped his butt or whatever. That's what his novel Contact is about, trying to get your parents back. I could see a lot of him in the novel. Interesting. Nick, meanwhile, wrote, I remember him tossing me up in the air and catching me. I remember taking walks with him. (laughs) Very different childhood. Very different childhood. Very different dad. Another time, Nick said of his father, my dad was, in addition to being my dad, he was also the best teacher I ever had and one of the most inspiring people on the planet. Well, that's nice. Yeah. It's quite a complex character. One out of three. (laughs) Ain't bad. In 1977, NASA reached out to Carl, asking him to assemble some messages for a possible extraterrestrial civilization to send into space with the twin Voyager probes. This is the golden record. If you're, yeah, ask yeah. the misogynist about life on Earth. It was called the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. The idea behind it was to attach some type of communication to whatever life forms may come across Voyager out in the void. Beyond that, NASA gave Carl freedom to choose the format and what would be included. It was kind of all on him. But they had a very tight deadline. So he enlisted Linda to help him do this, as well as several others to play important roles. One of these was a woman that Carl had met back in 1974 at a party at TD alum writer Nora Ephron's New York City home. Can you oh. imagine the the Nora Ephron dinner party with Carl Sagan? I wonder if she served the famous salad dressing. Mm, I bet. I bet. Uh, this woman's name was Andruyan. Andruyan was engaged to science writer Tim Ferriss, not the four-hour workweek guy, different Tim Ferriss, who was a longtime close friend and colleague of Carl's, who had been chosen to be the producer of the project and would become the creative director Not only would Anne serve as creative director for the NASA project, but she would become Carl Sagan's third wife in a few years. The team decided that the message would be a record with both audio and visual components with the, quote, aim to capture Earth's diversity of life and culture. It would include 59 human languages and 115 images of life. The project would become known as the Golden Record. Linda Salzman Sagan was given the role of greetings organizer. Again, with very limited time to work with, she gathered many of the people who would record greetings from Cornell and the surrounding communities, but also made sure to include diverse populations and a variety of languages. She was just making endless phone calls to find people all around the world whose native language was not English. The participants who recorded greetings to the extraterrestrials were not given any instructions on what to say. They were told the purpose of their greeting and that they should make their message fairly brief. The story behind the creation of the interstellar message was made into a book titled Murmurs of Earth. Here's an excerpt. This is by Linda Salzman Sagan. 
During the entire Voyager project, all decisions were based on the assumption that there were two audiences for whom the message was being prepared, those of us who inhabit Earth and those who exist on the planets of distant stars. We recorded messages from populations all over the globe, each representative speaking in the language of his or her people, instead of sending greetings in one or two languages accompanied by keys for their decipherment. We were aware that the latter alternative might have given the extraterrestrials a better chance of understanding the words precisely, though it would have raised the thorny question of which two languages to send. We felt it was fitting that Voyager greet the universe as a representative of one community, albeit a complex one consisting of many parts. At least the fact that many different languages are represented should be clear from the very existence of a set of short statements separated by pauses and from internal evidence, such as the initial greeting. Namaste, which begins many of the greetings from the Indian subcontinent, the greetings are an oral gestalt in which each culture is a contributing voice in the choir. After all, by sending a spaceship out of our solar system, we are making an effort to deprovincialize, to rise above our nationalistic interests, and join a commonwealth of spacefaring societies, if one exists. 1977. It right. was a magical time. Just TBD on uh, all that. Still, I mean, I'm glad they did it. In addition, the message contained a collection of images and diagrams of things like the solar system, DNA, the human anatomy, animals, plants, architecture, earth stuff. And of course, there was music. The musical choices were made to include an array of styles, genres, and musical types that would represent a variety of different cultures. So there are classical composers like Bach and Beethoven, but blues by Louis Armstrong, aboriginal songs, bagpipes, a Peruvian wedding song, and most controversially, Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. That's a real golden record. Yeah, it, this was the choice was criticized because a lot of people said, you know, rock and roll, that's an adolescent music form. And Carl replied, there are a lot of adolescents on this planet. Why don't you ask Isaac Asimov about his grandkids? <laughs> the Golden Record also included an hour-long recording of Andrian's brainwaves and decided she would think of Earth's history, civilizations, and the problems they face. It is no surprise that these people were all smoking pot. <laughs> nope, not at all. And what it was like to fall in love while her brainwaves were being recorded. According to Anne, she was meditating on the wonder of love, of being in love. And this was actually quite easy for her because she was no. in love. With Rachel's boy, I'm assuming. Yeah, throughout yep. this extraordinary and time-consuming project, Carl and Anne were working very closely together and also falling in love. What does Linda have to say about that? Oh, she will have much to say later because she doesn't find out for a while. Oh, no. In fact, Anne has said that she recalls the precise day that she and Carl confessed their love for each other. It was June 1st, 1977, during a phone call. Anne says she excitedly called Carl when she found the perfect piece of Chinese music to put on the record. By the end of that phone call, they had decided to get married. So no obstacle, no barrier with the wife no, that you've already got. No, or her engagement to Carl's best friend? Sure. Poor Tim Ferriss. Yeah, she says we both hung up the phone and I just screamed out loud. It was this great eureka moment. It was like a scientific discovery. Voyager 1 launched on August 20th, 1977, carrying a copy of the Golden Record. Two days later, 
Carl Sagan and Andrewian announced their engagement. But he's not... <sighs> Linda and Carl would not divorce until 1981, and a whole heck of a lot happened in those four years. Oh, my... In 1980, Carl co-wrote and narrated the PBS television series Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, and published the companion book of the same name. It's difficult to kind of capture how much this changed Carl's life. The book spent 70 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It sold over 5 million copies, and he was then given a $2 million advance to write the novel Contact. Not only did Cosmos make Carl a very wealthy man, it also made him something of a celebrity. He was part of pop culture and would often appear on talk shows not just to discuss scientific topics, he was there as an entertainer. Carl had permeated the culture so much that he was a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson 26 times. Unbelievable. And referred to it as the biggest classroom in history, which is one way of thinking of it. He became known as the astronomer of the people. Time magazine called him America's most effective salesman of science and the showman of science. Oh, the showman of science. Yeah. When is he going to be the showman of his divorce? Right. The showman of science had some decisions to make. Carl's assistant, Shirley Arden, told Davidson, I learned Carl was involved with Annie long before Linda knew. I handled his personal bills, and one day some telltale American Express bills crossed my desk that showed Carl paying for Annie's transportation. I quietly called it to his attention and suggested he be more careful if he was going to have a fling so that he would not hurt anyone unnecessarily. Oh, this is no fling. We're getting married. Come on. She went on. Oh, no. He told me he did not want to hurt anyone, but that he had fallen deeply in love with Annie. He said he was going to tell Linda when they went to Cape Cod and that Annie was going to tell Tim at the same time in New York City. He then asked me to be supportive of Linda and do what I could to help her during the difficult days ahead. Which is thoughtful. Which is uncharacteristically thoughtful it seems at this like. point. Carl didn't think he could or should tell Linda alone, so he asked his good friend Lester Grinspoon, not Tim Ferriss, who was busy that weekend, to be there to help him break the news. That is just shameful that you bring a buddy to help you break up with your wife. Like, what? Well, Lester was like, dude, not... No. No, no, no. So Lester encouraged Carl not to tell Linda right away. He felt that the strong feelings of infatuation that Carl had for Annie would pass and that he would then regret ending his marriage. Lester said that Carl would not be deterred and insisted that he had to be with Annie. Oh, what happens? Linda was devastated yeah, and tried hard to get Carl to stay. She was not just devastated by Carl's betrayal, of course, but she and Anne had become quite close during their time working on the Golden Record together. So this was a good friend plus her husband betraying her. It was... They had, you know, interacted socially. They had built a relationship, and it was just awful. I'm sure Tim Ferriss was in the same... Like, he's known Carl Sagan for years, and what the heck? Okay. This is all trashy. Carl, of course, newly celebrity Carl, reaches out to celebrity lawyer Marvin Mitchelson. No! He of palimony fame, trashy divorces alum. Marvin, we Marvin hardly Mitchelson knew ya. To represent him in the divorce. 
Marvin Mitchelson, of course, was a showman who loved headlines about himself, and some of his Hollywood clients had included Robert De Niro, Mickey Rooney, Sylvester Stallone, Jaja Gabor, Joan Collins, many, many, many others. He also had a service that collected headlines about his cases globally, because, I mean, this was way pre-internet. Right. And he, put them all in scrapbooks, yeah, right? and like mm-hmm. papered his walls with them. I mean, he was kind of an egomaniac. Anyway, oh, the spider webs. So the divorce was ugly, and it dragged on. There was a lot of fighting. Their son, Nick, said it was a bitter, bitter divorce. At a certain point, it became like a powder keg and a match. They fought over money for years, which cost them both a ton in legal fees. Neither one was willing to budge, and they often just put Nick right in the middle of everything. Oh, no. Not great. Meanwhile, though, Cosmos was keeping Carl in the media, and he was traveling a lot to promote the series and the book. He was carrying on his romance with Anne very publicly during this time. The divorce would not be finalized until late May 1981. And Carl and Anne married on June 1st, 1981, four years to the day after that phone call. Holy cats. Mm -hmm. You're thinking of Ampelin? It's Henry VIII who marries Jane Seymour 11 days after Anne Boleyn's murder. I guess no time to waste. I guess not. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will get to the conclusion of the story. Perfect. Back in a minute. Okay. So Carl and Annie at long last. And in fairness, this one does work. This, it seems like he did finally encounter his true love. Yay. Yeah. So again, June 1st, 1981, fourth anniversary of their declaration of love. They walk down the aisle (laughs) at the Hotel Bel Air. Although they hurt and alienated many people with the way their romance began, everybody agrees that they were deeply in love and that Annie was really good for Carl. She made him a better, nicer person. She encouraged him to build a relationship with his two oldest sons from his first marriage. She also encouraged him to make amends to people that he had hurt, and top of the list was first wife Lynn Margulis. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's a surprise. She said that Carl asked her to go to dinner with him, and he told her that he had not appreciated how much work she had to do around the house and raising the kids while he was off jetting around and becoming famous. So it seems like he kind of got there. Lynn continues. Oh, no. Which was completely true. He just didn't realize. And he apologized, formally apologized to me. But Annie made him... I'm sure he wouldn't have realized that unless she were aware of what really happened, because she's aware. Annie's great. Aww. (laughs) In a different interview, Lynn said Annie is the best thing that ever happened to Carl. Oh, well, that's nice. More surprisingly still, Carl's mother, Rachel, was (laughs) head over heels for Anne. Really? Before their wedding, Rachel gave Anne a family heirloom, a bonnet that Carl had worn as a baby, and said, I've been saving this all of Carl's life because I was waiting for you. Well, Rachel. So these two would also have two children. Their daughter, Sasha, was born in 82, and their son, Samuel, was born in 1991. Carl and Anne would remain happily married until his death on December 20th, 1996. Uh, This is because in late 1994, Carl was diagnosed with a rare disease, possibly called myelodysplasia. 
this is a blood disease that typically leads to acute leukemia. Mm. Your, your blood cells just don't mature properly in your bone marrow. He got a bone marrow transplant from his long-suffering sister, Carrie. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wonder how much Rachel had right. to uh, do to get that one handled. Take that, Rachel. The transplant was successful, and he improved. Uh, this did produce yet another ethical dilemma for him. He had long been an outspoken critic of animal research and testing and had called the practice morally bankrupt. But he now realized that he had beaten death because of a marrow grafting that was made possible by research on rodents and dogs. He wrote, I remain very conflicted on this issue. I would not be alive today if not for research on animals. The remission from the bone marrow transplant did not last. He became sick again and was told this time that it would be fatal. He spent his last days at the Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. Carl Sagan died from pneumonia, resulting from myelodysplasia, on December 20th, 1996, at the age of 62. In an epilogue that Anne wrote for Carl's last book, Billions and Billions, this was published posthumously in 1997, Anne wrote, Contrary to the fantasies of the fundamentalists, there was no deathbed conversion, no last-minute refuge taken in a comforting vision of a heaven or an afterlife. For Carl, what mattered most was what was true, not merely what would make us feel better. Even at this moment, when anyone would be forgiven for turning away from the reality of our situation, Carl was unflinching. As we looked deeply into each other's eyes, it was with a shared conviction that our wondrous life together was ending forever. In 2003, Anne reflected on her relationship with her late husband. Despite it being in opposition to many readers' beliefs in an afterlife, Everyone can agree it's a remarkable statement on the depth of human love. This is what she wrote. When my husband died because he was so famous and known for not being a believer, many people would come up to me, it still sometimes happens, and ask me if Carl changed at the end and converted to a belief in an afterlife. They also frequently ask me if I think I will see him again. Carl faced his death with unflagging courage and never sought refuge in illusions. The tragedy was that we knew we would never see each other again. I don't ever expect to be reunited with Carl, but the great thing is that when we were together for nearly 20 years, we lived with a vivid appreciation of how brief and precious life is. We never trivialized the meaning of death by pretending it was anything other than a final parting. Is this like Gavin McLeod? Do you want me to try to take over? You're getting a little emotional over there. I mean, it's... Yeah, you want to? I feel yeah, like, let's I feel see like if our I've learned anything. I feel like our listeners enjoyed that, actually. Okay, let's see what we got. Who's saying this again? This is Anne. Oh, this is Anne. Anne continues. Wife. Every single moment that we were alive and we were together was miraculous. Not miraculous in the sense of inexplicable or supernatural. We knew we were beneficiaries of chance. That pure chance could be so generous and so kind that we could find each other, as Carl wrote so beautifully in Cosmos. You know, in the vastness of space and the immensity of time, that we could be together for 20 years. That is something which sustains me, and it's much more meaningful. The way he treated me and the way I treated him, the way we took care of each other and our family, while he lived, that is so much more important than the idea that I will see him someday. I don't think I'll ever see Carl again, but I saw him. We saw each other. 
We found each other in the cosmos, and that was wonderful. Well, I'm a little teary, too. I made that through a little better than you did, but Carl Sagan, nice. You've got nice (laughs) wives. I don't know how. Anne seems like a real hot shot there. He seems to have gotten better over time, but also perhaps better than he deserved. (laughs) (laughs) Think true on both counts. Stacey, have you got any trash cans for us? A universe full. Of course. A A cosmos full. In this galaxy and beyond? Just shooting on out of the solar system so that extraterrestrials can find our trash cans and be like, that's a cool planet. Filled with golden records. I love it. Well done. Thank you for bringing part two of Carl Sagan to the Trash Pandas. You're so welcome. Thanks to all y'all for tuning in and spending your time with us for this conclusion of Carl Sagan's marital misadventure. The scientist. (laughs) We will be back for you next Wednesday with a brand new episode. In the meantime, you can always get more Trashy Divorces over at patreon.com slash Trashy Divorces. Early and ad-free episodes, dumpster dives, bonus divorces, and all the like. Don't forget, if you're looking to fill in some listening time in your podcast playlist, every Monday drops Done and Done. That is your Dominic Dunn fan cast, as it were. Holy cats, we are about to start the a do- whole new season. The Dominic Dunn cinematic universe, perhaps. If you are looking for a good time to get in on that, a little bit of a hint here. We're about to go on the heiress tour Uh uh-huh you can also get more from us on thursdays at trashy royals wherever you listen to podcasts taking a look at the victorians lately yeah we're gonna get queen victoria and prince albert Mm -hmm. not in a can hitch next week be on the lookout for those if you want a little bit more of stacy and i and the things we do here at the headquarters of trash thanks again for tuning in everyone Thanks for telling your friends and fellow podcast enthusiasts. Thanks for your kind reviews, your emails. Y'all are simply the best community out there. Can't wait to be back with you on Wednesday. And until we meet again, my darlings. Keep your hands clean. Keep those hearts trashy. Bye. Big love, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. 
I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there, and thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.